Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're getting to the end of our, it's ending up being a 34-35 class structured study of jhana meditation. Um, and I think you, you're all getting uh, a profound understanding of what jhana meditation is all about and the framework in which it is taught. Um, and so we develop jhana meditation, we develop concentration so that we can be mindfully present for our life as our life occurs. It takes concentration to do that. Um, and then, the, so the reason why that is so important is so that we can, we can hold in mind what we actually are with an understanding of the world we live in. And so, let me just read the introduction, the last paragraph of the introduction to the sutta. The Buddha taught one path, an eightfold path, that provides the framework and ongoing guidance to recognize and abandon all self-referential views rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. The Buddha shows in this sutta the great freedom and calm that is developed through becoming rightly self-awakened. So that phrase, rightly self-awakened, is what the Buddha referred to, used to refer to himself as the rightly self-awakened one, and then to all of us who would develop the Dhamma. In other words, we are all responsible ourselves, individually, to become rightly self-awakened. It was a, it's such an important three words and, a, and an important phrase. We, we become self-awakened by our own efforts, and there's a right way to do it. And that right way is characterized as the Eightfold Path. Um, and so... Uh, this class and the next class, next Thursday's class, which is the Simsapa Sutta, the Handful of Leaves Sutta, you, you, you might have heard me teach it one or two times because it's an important one. Uh, in that Sutta, the Buddha makes the point that the Eightfold Path is a limiting path and it avoids and abandons uh, getting into any speculative or magical views. In other words, all the things that we think are important and that we must have an answer to if they're unrelated to the Dhamma, we, we don't try to attach ourselves to them and bring them into the Dhamma or insist that our Dhamma answer questions that are simply irrelevant to the Dhamma. On one occasion, the Buddha was wandering among the Magadhans. He entered Rajagaha and went to the, went to the potter Bhagava. He asked Bhagava, if it is no inconvenience for you, friend, I will stay for one night in your shed. Bhagavad responds, it, it is no inconvenience for me, but the wander, wanderer Pukasati has already taken up residence there. If he gives his permission, you may stay there as you like. So this sutta, one of the reasons why I like it, I mean, especially the, the, the subject, but you see the playfulness of the Buddha. And, and this comes across in, uh, in, in many different suttas, how the, the Buddha never took himself personally, and some suttas he actually reveals that in a, in a profound way here. Pukasati, a fellow Sakin, meaning a member of the Buddha's familiar clan, had gone forth into homelessness and was developing the Buddha's Dhamma, although he hadn't yet met the Buddha. The Buddha approached Pukasati and asked him if he could stay one night in his shed, giving ownership of the shed to Pukasati. 
Pukasata replied, This shed is roomy, my friend. Stay as you like. The Buddha entered the shed and sat on a pile of leaves and grass. Folding his legs crosswise and holding his body erect, the common meditation posture, he set mindfulness to the fore and began jhana meditation, just like we do every session. Pukasati joined him in meditation for the evening. As morning approached, and there's a, a misunderstanding from lines like this that the Buddha engaged in very long sessions of meditation. What we're referring to here is that the Buddha spent the evening in um, in a meditative mode, but it doesn't necessarily mean he meditated for 8, 10, or 12 hours straight. It just means that that time was devoted towards meditation. But he was also sleeping and resting during this time. As morning approached, the Buddha had the thought, how inspiring Pukasati behaves, excuse me. Meaning the respect that Pukasati showed another human being and the fact that he had the, um, the diligence to meditate. How inspiring Pukasati behaves. Let me question him on his understanding. Venerable Pukasati, out of dedication to whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher and whose Dhamma are you practicing? The Buddha, the Buddha knew the answer to this before he asked the question, but he's, he's, he's going to give Pukasati a couple of needles as a way of teaching him. Pukasati responds, My teacher is Gotama the contemplative, a Sakyan son. He is known far and wide as a Buddha, a rightly self-awakened one, who is consummate and clear-knowing and of pure conduct. He is an expert of worldly affairs and the unsurpassed teacher of those, again, an important line, those fit to be taught. Then Pukasati says, I have gone forth with dedication to him as my teacher, and it is his Dhamma I am practicing. Then the Buddha says, Friend Pukasati, and he says this with a little smile on his face, where is the Buddha staying now? So again, put yourself in his place 2,600 years ago. You're, you're sitting with an awakened human being, and yet he is completely self-awake, uh, self-effacing, and even a little um, silly or lighthearted in his inter- interaction. And he's doing this for a reason. He doesn't want to come across... Um, in any condescending way to Pukasati, because that's not how he wants to present himself. Friend Pukasati, where is the Buddha staying now? Well, wanderer, I have heard that the Buddha is in Savati, a nearby town. Have you met the Buddha? Would you recognize him? No, I have not. I have never met the Buddha, and I would not recognize him. So the Buddha understood Pukasati's devotion, and without identifying himself, he said, Pukasati, I will teach you the Dhamma, friend. Listen and pay close attention as I speak. So again, Pukasati doesn't know he's hearing the words of the Buddha. And then the Buddha starts with a basic... Now he understands Pukasati is practicing the Dhamma. He has um, a broad understanding and he still has a little bit more to go. So the Buddha... um, One of the reasons why the Buddha was given um, uh, qualities of clairvoyance is because he was simply so mindfully present with people and he understood the nature of the human mind that he could simply understand the person very quickly. So he understood what was lacking in Pukasati's practice. And so he gives him this very basic teaching. But it is so important. To me, this is one of the most important suttas 
I've ever read, and it, and it was not until well into my restoration of the suttas that I ever came across this, because this teaches exactly what a human being is and all that a human being can ever be. The Buddha says, or teaches, a person has six properties, six media of sensory conduct, meaning the sixth sense base, leading to 18 distinct considerations, things that we should consider as Dhamma practitioners. Furthermore, again, I should, 18 considerations in relation to these six properties. Again, the considerations aren't something that were um, embellishing the original six properties. They're informing what the six properties are. Furthermore, a well-focused Dhamma practitioner establishes four wise determinations. Having established these four wise determinations, this one has stilled the distraction of of fabricated speculation and supposition. He's simply describing a human being who who has developed concentration and refined mindfulness to be present with their life as their life occurs, free of the distraction of fabricated speculation and supposition, meaning what I might be, what I could be, what I should be. When the distraction of fabricated speculation and supposition has stilled, again, these are the Buddha's words, has stilled, this one is said to be a sage of peace. When I'm no longer imagining myself in this world or grasping after being something other than what I am in this moment, this one is said to be a sage of peace, one who understands. The Buddha continues, a well-focused Dharma practitioner should not neglect wise discernment, should always guard the truth, meaning four noble truths, and should always be devoted to unbinding, unbinding from views ignorant of these truths, and train their minds only for calm. Not for visualization, not for grasping after some further future establishment. In the Dhamma, we train our minds only for calm. Then the Buddha says, it continues, this is my summary and analysis of these six properties. So every human being that I'm about to describe, the Buddha described 2,600 years ago, is what every human being is made of, is consistent of, and all that a human being can ever be. And our human life is experienced through this this six-property person, animated and informed by the present level of mindfulness. Excuse me. What that means, what I just said, means that at each and every moment, our experience of that moment is determined by what we're holding in mind. Another way of saying that is the quality of our mind. And if the quality of our mind is well concentrated and refined, framed by the Eightfold Path, then this moment will be a moment of calm. Again, the whole point of the Buddha's Dhamma. And one of the reasons why people have so much difficulty continuing with this path is even those practitioners that have been doing it for a period of time and gaining benefit, and I've had many students like this, they get to the point where they just want more and they fall away. Or even in the beginning of practice, people just say, there's got to be more to life, there's got to be more to this, you know, and an awakened human being said, Wanting that more is the problem. We train only for calm. The Buddha says, this is my summary and analysis of these six properties. So every human being is made up of these. The earth property, the liquid property, the fire property, the wind property. 
So the four elements, right? The space property, those four elements that make up a human body and and um, populate the human body with life-giving forces, meaning uh, air and fluid, need space in order to have a presence in the world. The fifth property, we require this. The space property is necessary for something as simple as an eye socket or an ear canal or a nose canal or a throat in order to breed or to take in sustenance. The space property and the sixth property of the consciousness property. And it is that last property that human beings, especially new agers, lose their minds over. The whole idea of a cosmic consciousness or a one mind consciousness or a unity consciousness, all of that is something that is a fabrication and is not resting in what the Buddha taught. Consciousness as the Buddha taught is something that is resting in ignorance. In other words, it's ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. It's nothing to worship at all, ever. An awakened consciousness is not, nothing, is not anything to worship either. It's simply ordinary, but ordinary awakened human consciousness. Full human maturity. And the Buddha concludes that by saying, a person has these six properties. Period. Then the Buddha says, furthermore, within that, a person has these six media of sensory conduct, contact. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the intellect. This is how the sixth property person comes in contact with the world through its senses. This is such an utterly basic teaching that most people just disregard it as it's too obvious. But pay attention to this. This is where everything manifests for us. Within this six property person, informed by what is coming in contact with our sense organs. A person has these six media of sensory conduct, the sixth sense base. Furthermore, the person has 18 considerations. What comes in, the considerations are what, what and how to consider what comes in contact with these senses. So each one of these organs is giving its own type of consciousness. And this can be confusing at first until you realize that sometimes I'm understanding what's occurring in the world through, through my eyes, through what I'm seeing. A beautiful tree. But as I walk by that tree, another sense might, might if it's a plumeria bush, then another sense might take over. My sensory conduct. And then as I move a little further and I hear the wind rustling, I don't mean to sound to wax poetic, the wind rustling through the trees, then I, my ear contact might be taking place then. And in fact, if it was a honeysuckle bush and it dropped off and I tasted one of the petals, then my taste is informing me. And all the while, that other property, the sixth property, my consciousness, again, rooted in either ignorance or wisdom, is informing what I'm coming in contact with. Without that sixth property, all of that process I just described, which took place in just a few moments and in a very small physical area, would have been completely useless without the way I thought about it. Now, if I had the preconceived notion that honeysuckle bushes were evil or were somehow hurtful towards some people, or, again, just to... just to, I don't have to go there anymore. In some way, my understanding of a honeysuckle tree was negative, that it was ugly, it smelled awful, it tasted like crap, and it disturbed my mind, 
I would have a completely different experience based on what I was holding in mind about the tree. Am I making myself clear? So because of what I'm holding in mind determines my experience. And again, I could give any, any I could use a human being as the, as the same example. So, on seeing form with the eye, one considers form the basis for pleasure or form as a basis for disappointment or form as a basis for equanimity. So a mind rooted in ignorance, now we can, we can apply this to this form, the form that I'm calling John. If this form is enough for me, then I'll be pleased. But if it isn't, if it's not tall enough, smart enough, um, strong enough, short enough, supple enough, male enough, female enough, big in some areas or not in some areas, I'm going to take pleasure or disappointment. But I'll always be judging this form in one way or another unless I understand that all a human being can be is a six-property person. And then this will form the basis for equanimity, for a calm, peaceful, calm and peaceful mind. Depending on how I perceive this form and the forms around me. So my physical form and the tree and you and Putin and the world around me and the stream in the backyard can be a basis for pleasure, for disappointment, or for equanimity. If I am not taking, if I am not taking anything in the world personally, it will all be a basis for equanimity. And in that way, I can stay present for each and every moment of my life. The Buddha continues on hearing a sound, sound with the ear. One considers sound as a basis for pleasure, or sound as a basis for disappointment, or sound as a basis for equanimity. So why is the Buddha breaking these senses down into 18 considerations? Because it is with our senses. It's just putting an emphasis. It is on our senses, our senses being interpreted by our consciousness that will determine our experience. On smelling an aroma with a nose, one considers aroma as a basis for pleasure or a basis for disappointment or as a basis for equanimity, depending on what we're holding in mind. What is my choice in this moment? I do have a choice, by the way, if I'm developing the Dhamma, because I'm gaining control over my mind, and so I'm gaining control over my life experience. And so in this moment, if this is a moment of distress, I know immediately it is because I'm taking it personally. And to remind myself, take a breath, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. So I, when I walk by, that honeysuckle tree that I love and I can't wait for more of it and I keep looking for the next honeysuckle tree, I remind myself, wait a minute, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, the smell is enough. Or I walk by a honeysuckle tree and I hate the smell, I can remind myself in two steps, I will be past it. It's an impermanent experience. No reason to take it personal. The tree is just a tree. The person is just a person. My form is just a form. It has nothing to do with me, except that it houses this sixth sense base. On tasting flavor with the tongue, etc., etc. On feeling tactile sensation with the body, again, just a consideration. On cognizing an idea with the intellect, one considers the idea, every thought that occurs, is either a basis for pleasure, a basis for disappointment, or a basis for equanimity. 
Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. What, what am I holding in mind? To this, to this one idea, this one thought. And ultimately, and again, we're not being finite, this finite in our practice, but ultimately the Dhamma rests in having control of each and every thought that we have. That might seem impossible and maybe not even desirable, but it is a natural expression of an awakened human being. There is no ongoing diligence. That level of concentration, being in control of each and every thought, is awakened, refined mindfulness. The Buddha concludes that by saying, these are the six considerations that are conducive to pleasure, the six considerations that are conducive to disappointment. Again, they conduce or, or, or they carry our minds towards either pleasure, towards disappointment, or these six considerations are conducive to equanimity. A person has these 18 considerations. And I would add, a person has only these 18 considerations. Because this is the, these three considerations through the sixth sense base, 18 considerations, are the only choices that we have relating to how we experience our life. It's either pleasure, it's either pain, or it's equanimity, calm. And it's up to us. Furthermore, what is that saying? Yeah. Oh, I think my hard drive is failing. <laughs> Furthermore, the wise Dhamma practitioner has these four determinations. Once we are able to understand how to apply our choices or our considerations, then, the det- then we can develop the determination for discernment. We first have to establish that understanding of, of what we actually are and how we come in contact with the world. And again, I wouldn't teach this as the first Dhamma class anybody ever heard, but coming at the end of our uh, the 34 classes of jhana and the other classes that you've had, you can understand how to apply this. Now I have the de- determination for discernment, how to see myself in relation to the world with wisdom informed by refined mindfulness. The determination for truth, for understanding four noble truths, the determination for relinquishment, relinquishment of all views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Again, this is where the Eightfold Path frames this practice. And the determination for calm. So let me read those again. This is why we are all practicing the Dhamma. Because we are determined to develop wise discernment. We are determined to develop understanding of four noble truths. We are determined for experiencing that truth. We are determined to relinquish every view that is ignorant of four noble truths and we have the Eightfold Path as a framework to know what we are to abandon. And as wise Dhamma practitioners, we are determined for one thing, not escape, not pleasure, not to abandon disappointment, but for one thing, for calm. A wise Dhamma practitioner, the Buddha teaches from 2,600 years ago, has these four wise determinations. That's why we're doing this. I'm just skipping over a little bit of commentary. The Buddha continues, A Dhamma practitioner should not neglect discernment, meaning we need to develop it. We should guard the truth. We should always guard four noble truths. Why is the Buddha saying that? Because even during his time, those that had developed four noble truths were still prone to add a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth truth 
to those four noble truths. They might have come across um, a, some charismatic so-called spiritual teacher and you liked what he had. And so, well, let me incorporate this a little bit. It couldn't hurt. It's not four noble truths. It might be something you want to do on a Sunday afternoon just to kick around some time, but we need to be very careful, careful and practice wise discernment and understand it's not part of the Dhamma. We guard the truth. We should be devoted to relinquishment of all views ignorant of four noble truths. That is our devotion. You're not devoted to the Dhamma. You're not devoted to the Buddha. You're not devoted to John Haspel. You're devoted to only the truth. And you train only for calm. I'm not training to have supernatural powers. I'm not training to be a little bit better than the next person. I'm not training to be the world's greatest meditator. I'm training for calm. And when I know calm isn't present, I know I have a little bit more work to do. That's all. And when I recognize that I'm not calm, you remember that bald-headed teacher from Pennsylvania? To be gentle with ourselves. Because that's the only way we can develop all of this. And how does one not neglect discernment? Through mindfulness of these six properties. To recognize it. When I'm distracted by my own greed or aversion, rooted in deluded thinking, I'm mindful of these six properties. I'm mindful that this, that these six properties is all that I can ever be. And notice from however, whatever, wherever you are in your life, I'm 66 years in, right? 66 years plus. For all of those six, for every moment of those 66 years plus, despite every experience I've ever had, despite all the eye-making I've ever indulged in, I've only ever been this six-property person. What you are looking at right now, despite what you think of me, good, bad, or indifferent, I am only a six-property person. No matter how brilliant you see me as, smile, I am only a six-property person. No, how, no matter how disgusting I appear to you, no matter how revolting I might be because of my views, or no matter how appealing I might be because of my cute smile, I am only a six-property person. And if you can see me this way, I can never be a disturbance to you. And if you can present yourself that way to other people, then you can never be a disturbance to them. Other people might be disturbed by the way you live in your life, but you will know you are not the cause of that. And that itself brings great liberation and freedom. That's one of the great liberating factors of the Eightfold Path, and it was for me when I finally realized that because of the way I'm now living my life, and this was a realization that I never knew I wanted to have, but I never had in that moment, and I would say from that moment on, I could never harm myself or another, hurt, another person intentionally. And there is great liberation and freedom in that. Uh, and I, I talk about that in other classes. So again, and how does one not neglect discernment? By, through mindfulness of the six properties. This is all I am. And what is the earth property? The earth property can be internal or external. Right? What are organs? What houses these organs? And also everything that's outside of us. It's internal and external. The internal earth property is anything within oneself that is hard, solid, sustained by craving, meaning craving not that it that craving gave birth to these things, craving because of the self-identification with these things. 
Um, anything that is solid and sustained by craving, head, hair, body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, um, heart, liver, membranes, spleen, intestines, contact, contents of, of the stomach, excuse me. Contents of the stomach, feces, and anything internal within oneself that is hard, solid, and sustained by craving. So again, and just quickly to explain this, how does um, how are how is my uh, the contents of my stomach relate to craving? How did my craving create that? Well, what it re- what the Buddha is talking about is when my stomach is upset to under to not take it personal, just understand that's part of being a six property person. And sometimes human beings have upset upset stomach. Or sometimes we might, again, excuse the, the, I probably wouldn't do this if there were ladies in the class. When I pass a little gas, don't take it personal and don't take it personal with other people because sometimes people stink. And again, again, we all laugh and we should laugh at this. And if somebody lets out a loud one sitting next to us, we should all laugh about it. But because it's funny, because we're not taking ourselves seriously, not because we're laughing at someone. And again, that's all that the Buddha means. But, we, but our craving personalizes things like tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys. I have the strongest muscles and the, and the strongest bones and the biggest heart. You know, I mean, we hear people all, a lot of times talking about what a big heart they have. Well, that's, again, that's what the Buddha's talking about. Everybody has a heart. Everybody has kidneys. Everybody passes gas. It's just being a part of a human being. Within oneself that is solid and sustained by craving. This is called the internal earth property. An important line, both internal earth property and external earth property are simply earth property. Another reason why that's relevant is I can protect, protect, project this property, this form, into another future form by doing good deeds and visualizing and having all the right teachers and doing this and that. That's projecting your this earth property into an external earth property. And the Buddha's teaching that all of that speculation is simply earth property. No matter how much you might want to think of yourself as something uh, supernatural to this, is simply rooted here. There's no there's no validity to any of that external earth property. Uh, again, skipping over some of the comments that I hope you read. And then the Buddha says, this is how the earth property should be seen by one with right discernment. Then he says those famous words, this earth property, this form, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am, this is not myself. Then he says, when one sees this as it has come to be, meaning as it has developed with right view, with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the earth property and through lack of sustenance. What would sustenance be? Ignorance. Through lack of sustenance, the earth property fades from the mind. By simply being gentle with ourselves and being engaged with Dharma practice, that is all that we have to do, and the fabrication of the earth property, the self-identification, fades from the mind. I don't have to analyze it. I don't have to judge it. I don't have to pray that I get rid of it. I don't have to wish it was gone right now. I have to understand it and be at peace with it. Understand that this is the earth property. It's prone to stress and suffering because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. 
And what is the liquid property? I'm going to go through this a little quicker. The liquid property, uh, the liquid property can be internal or external. The internal liquid property is anything belonging to oneself that is liquid, watery, sustained by craving, etc., etc. So the fluids of our body. This is how the liquid property should be seen by one with right discernment. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. When one sees this as it has come to be with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the liquid property. Through lack of sustenance, the liquid property fades from the mind. And what is the fire property? The fire property can be, again, internal or external. The internal fire property is anything belonging to oneself that is fire and sustained by craving. The internal fire property is that by which the body is warm. Food metabolism, right? The internal and the external fire property are both simply the fire property, as is the feeling property, the earth property. Um, when one sees this as it has come to be with right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the fire property and through lack of sustenance, one the fire property fades from the mind. What is the wind property? We just discussed that in other ways. The wind property is also respiration, right? The in property, let me read the Buddhist words. The, wind, the internal wind property is rising or falling wind, wind in the stomach, wind in the intestines, wind that, that courses through the body, in and out breathing, or anything else internal within oneself that is wind, um, windy and sustained is called internal wind, po- wind property. Both internal and external wind property are simply the wind property. In other words, everything is occurring within me. This is how the wind property should be seen by one with right discernment, etc., etc. And what is the space property? The space property can be internal or external. The internal space property is anything belonging to oneself that is space, spatial, and sustained by craving. The mouth, the ear, the nose, the the channels within the body, etc. Within within oneself, that is space, spatial, and sustained by craving. This is called the internal space property. Excuse me. Both the internal and external space property are simply space property. Stop projecting outside of yourself. Again, the Buddha's words. This is how the, the space property should be seen by one with white dis- discernment and with that, that right discernment, one becomes disenchanted with the space property and through lack of sustenance, the space property fades from the mind. Again, the, the, the important word here, words here are fades from the mind. Many people still believe that when you awaken, poof, you just vanish from the world. Or you become, a, a, the, the, one, there's a Zen sect that, that talks about you become a useless mushroom. Uh, the, the Zen property fades from the mind. Self-reference fades from the mind. What's left is a vital, thinking, well-concentrated mind. And what is con- the consciousness property? Consciousness free of fabrication remains pure and bright. What is perceived by consciousness? One perceives pleasure, one perceives pain, one perceives neither pleasure nor pain. Again, that that is a mind that is resting in equanimity and simply sees life as life occurs. In dependence on sensory contact that is to be felt as pleasure, there arises, arises a feeling of pleasure. One perceives, I am sensing a feeling of pleasure. Independence, now I'm not saying one word, independence on sensory contact that is to be felt as pain, there arises a feeling of pain. 
independence on sensory contact that is to be felt as neither pleasure nor pain, there arises a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain. So we can trust our senses to have the appropriate response to what's occurring. As long as my mind is framed by the Eightfold Path and well concentrated, because we can perceive things as they are occurring. Through refined mindfulness, the Buddha's words, one understands with the cessation of self-identification of that very sensory contact, the feeling of pleasure has arisen independent, indep- I'm sorry, independently of that contact. How, what does that mean? Let me read it again too. Through refined mindfulness, one understands that with the cessation of self-identification of that very sensory contact, wow, this is a beautiful uh, tree, the feeling of pleasure has arisen independently of that contact. Meaning it's simply because I'm, I'm living in this world that I'm able to have this experience of the beautiful tree or the stinky tree or the smelly fart. It's because I'm living in the world. The tree or the fart aren't here because I'm here. I'm here and the fart and the tree and all of you are here. I've got to stop using that reference, huh? I just remembered I'm going to be recording. It says recording. It's going to go out there. So I'll try to stop using that word. Um, all of the things that we take in a personal way are not to be taken in a personal way. They're just an aspect of living in the world. And it's occurring to this six-property person. This six-property person that no matter what the experience that six-property person has can never be more. Through refined mindfulness, one understands with a cessation of self-identification, with that very sensory contact, the feeling of pain has arisen independently of that contact. What is to be felt at, at, as pain ceases. It is stilled, meaning I'm no longer reacting to it. I don't have to carry that pain from one moment to another through aversion. Through refined mindfulness, one understands that with a cessation of self-identification of that very sensory contact, the feeling of neither pleasure nor pain has arisen independently of that contact. What is to be felt as neither pleasure nor pain ceases. It is still. Just as that Buddha gives a wonderful metator, metaphor. Excuse me. Now again, just to remind you of the setting, the Buddha is teaching someone who he knows doesn't realize he's the Buddha, and Pukasati is listening to someone um, with a bit of skepticism because he doesn't believe that this guy who wandered into his hut is actually the great awakened one that he's heard about. The Buddha then says, just as when two sticks are brought together and agitated, (coughs) heat and fire are born dependent on contact and agitation. There would be no fire, a metaphor of passion, without contact and the forces that is agitating that contact. It's me rubbing these two sticks together, isn't it? I'm the one creating the agitation out of just something that could have just be left as contact. When the sticks are separated and the agitation ceases, heat subsides and the fire is extinguished. Once we cease taking things personal and stop self-agitating over things, the agitation ceases. 
It's up to us. It has nothing to do with the conditions of the world. The two sticks are always going to be there. It's up to me if I'm going to grab those two sticks and make something other than what they are. Create a fire over two benign you know, twigs. Or two benign ideas that once I stick them together and give them an identity could create some problems. Such as I'm this and you're not. Or, you know, or think of all the things, again, just using what's going on in the world today that we use to define, to divide ourselves from each other and create one-on-one conflicts and world wars are all rooted in the same ignorance. The Buddha then continues, in the same matter, again, just to make that point, in the same ignorance that would cause one to rub two sticks together when there's no good reason to. In the same way, in the same manner, an agitated mind, lacking concentration, independence on contact with, will feel feelings of pleasure or feelings of pain or feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. That last is how most human beings live their lives and they can't stand it. We call that, uh, one word would be ambiguity, but most of us see it as boring. We cannot stand it. The, some of the great millionaires, billionaires of our time made their money by figuring out very subtle ways, but very successful ways to take away people's boredom, to provide constant distraction. I'm talking about Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc., etc. People are addicted. There's a great book out now that I think Dominic is reading, and I hope you too, too, called, um, uh, now I lost it, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And he talks just about this First, in relation to how we're, we're so addicted to our cell phones, but he goes much deeper into the, the common human psyche about how we crave for distraction and cling to distraction. Something the Buddha recognized 2,600 years ago that human beings did without any technology. We're prone to do it. And we did it during the Buddha's time. Again, he taught that this is, this is a, uh, a common human distraction is the need to not be bored in this moment because I can't stand it. Uh, and we've taken that to huge extremes today. And, and I would say the biggest problem that I see with any modern Dhamma practitioner is just that. People tell me, I just can't see sitting two or three or five minutes not doing anything. And some people simply cannot do it. And think about that, again, getting a little bit away from the Dhamma. It's one of the saddest things that I've ever heard. It took me a while to understand why, or, that it, or even to be sad about it that an adult human being found it impossible to just sit quietly for a few minutes. But think about that. Shouldn't, I guess, just in general, forget about the Dhamma. Shouldn't an adult human being have the capability to be able to do that without distress? And yet most human beings cannot do that today. Just to sit quietly. What's happened? <laughs> That's why I reference that we've lost our minds. In that way, we have. We've lost control of our minds. We can't sit quietly for a few minutes. The Buddha says a wise Dharma practitioner understands that with a cessation of self-referential self-sensory contact, feelings of pleasure or pain or neither pleasure nor pain are stilled. So we're no longer bored and we can sit quietly with nothing happen for hours because that is being present for life as life occurs. Nothing needs to happen. Now, there remains only a mind established in equanimity. That mind is luminous, pure, supple, and spacious. I bet you would all, all describe 
you're developing jhana practice as developing spaciousness in your mind. And your life, I would bet, feels more and more uh, like you have a little bit more space and maybe even a little bit more time. This is a natural progression of, of uh, established Dharma practice. A mind established in equanimity, luminous, pure, supple, and spacious. Just as if a skillful goldsmith were to take raw gold and through skillful effort transform this raw gold into a refined and flawless ornament, malleable and luminous, the gold would now suit the goldsmith's purpose. We are the same way. We are that jeweler working with our malleable minds until it now suits our purpose. And again, the Eightfold Path develops the skill of that goldsmith to give us the, spirit, the, the, the skills to smith our own minds. That's what it's for. It's up to us. In the same manner, one who sees, one whose mind is established in equanimity, luminous, pure, supple, and spacious, knows, in quotes, if I were to direct my thinking toward non, the non-physical dimensions of in, infinite consciousness or infinite space or infinite ne- emptiness or nothingness or the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, I would know these dimensions as fabricated. The Buddha's direct words. When I read this, again, it knocked me off my seat because I was a modern Buddhist practitioner and every, every, every practice taught me that there was some type of non-physical establishment that I should, what I should aspire to. Over and over again, the Buddha teaches this. Don't go there. It's a fabrication. And we should know it as a fabrication. Any imaginary establishment or seeking to an imaginary establishment of myself, I should know as a fabrication. And not just a future life, but the next moment. But the next moment. If in this moment I'm holding myself out and and continuing to fabricate myself as the world's greatest meditation teacher, I've lost my mind. Because what am I doing? I'm using my sense contact and the direct opposite way an awakened human being told me not to. I'm taking this personal. Now, in the next moment, it might prove to be that I am the world's greatest meditation teacher, but I don't give a behind, rat's behind about knowing that. It's not, it didn't matter, doesn't matter to me. And as the Buddha is teaching Pukasati here and us 2,600 years later, it didn't matter to him. Remember, Siddhartha Gautama didn't start this little teaching off by saying, Pukasati, you're wrong. I'm that great man known as the Buddha. I'm the greatest teacher of all time. Kiss my feet and give me something, you know, give me a bowl of food and then I'll teach you. He gave him this teaching. He continues with saying, a wise Dharma practitioner does not fabricate. You remember dependent origination. From fabricate from ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition comes fabrication, a corrupted view of myself in relation to the world. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes contact. From contact in a few more steps come, uh, comes consciousness. From consciousness as a requisite condition with a few more steps comes contact. The, from ignorance of four noble truths comes this whole mass of suffering. Right, That's the correct teachings of dependent origination. And it's why I emphasize how important it is to understand that and not, not rely or refer to the corrupted way that dependent origination is often presented as interdependence, interconnectedness, or interbeing. 
A wise Dharma practitioner does not fabricate or mentally construct for the sake of self-establishment in this physical realm or any fabricated or imaginary non-physical realm. Fabrications abandoned, this one is not sustained through craving. What are we sustained by? A six-property person. It sustains itself without any thought on my part. Well, I should qualify that. The Buddha always said that this six-property person has four needs and only four. Every human being. Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And if you look at that, those four things, for most every human being, not every, but for most every human being, putting in a little bit of effort into their life can acquire a useful measure of food, clothing, and shelter, and medicine. And again, I don't want to get into the, into the, 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 the politics of poverty. Tom, me and Tom could have a, we should have a discussion on this one day. But most every human being has within the means to, to acquire appropriate food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And again, forget about getting into the societal aspects of, of uh, 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 disharmony between classes. But it's re- it is true. So we don't need to be yeah, overly concerned yeah, sorry, about... Can I just, just let you know that I've got to go. I'm so sorry, I've got to, I forgot that I've got to go at half past. So I just, oh, well, just there. Off, I just wanted to say goodbye and I will email you with my comments and please. Thanks yeah, a lot. Hey, Alex, let me know if you want to uh, get together with a, with another Zoom session or something to catch up. And also yeah, I just sure. do, do you know if you're if you're coming to our retreat or not? I'm planning to. I've got to double check the dates, but planning to be there, yeah. Okay, it's uh, the 28th, please? right? Yep. Um ah, June 28th to July 3rd. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, let me know and let you and Tom let me know if you want the quad room because I was asked if I didn't need it and if it would be okay to put you both in a double room. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. The difference is about a hundred bucks each, so it's 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 not you know it's not peanuts. So you you might want to be in the quad. Sure. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll be in touch. All right. Good to yeah. see you, my friend. You guys. Um. And so this is a rather long suit to Tom and Dominic. Do you have some time? Tom, you good? Uh, I'm okay. Good. Okay. I'm okay. So uh, this. How, um, yeah. No, I'm. I'm okay. Um, I can tell you. I I can speed this up anyway. Um, we probably got another half hour though, if that's all right. So this one is released from clinging to anything in the world, anything in the world, which is ultimately any view of me, any self-referential view. Well concentrated, this this one knows their mind is calm and well concentrated. It's going to stop sliding down. Um, so again, that's an important line. An important line. We know our minds are now well concentrated and calm from direct experience. Ahipasiko. This one knows. That birth is now ending, meaning giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. Birth is now ended. A life well integrated with the Eightfold Path has been lived. My task is complete. There is no further becoming in this world, meaning becoming further ignorant. Now I am living my life, and again, the Buddha lived for 45 more years as an awakened human being, which I would uh, say 
is the only way we should live because it's the only way we can live. Nothing further for this world. I'm no longer connected or distracted or entangled with the things of this world. So then the Buddha says, friend, friend Pukasati, when sensing a feeling of pleasure, understand it as impersonal and as such impermanent. Understanding thus craving and clinging vanish. So again, let me say it again. Friend Pukasati, when sensing a feeling of pleasure, understand it as impersonal. Don't take it personal. Don't, don't create self-identification with it. Abandon the eye-making. Understand it as impersonal, and when we can see it as impersonal, as such, it is impermanent. It is only by personalizing things that we try to create a permanence out of something that, that in this world has to be impermanent. Understanding thus, craving and clinging vanish. Likewise, when sensing a feeling of pain or sensing a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain, understand these feelings as impermanent, as impersonal, <coughs> excuse me, and as such impermanent. Understanding things as impermanent and impersonal, craving and clinging vanish. Remember what we learned, what true Vipassana is as the Buddha teaches it. And again, it has nothing to do with the modern Vipassana movement. Vipassana means insight, but very specifically, introspective insight into the three marks of existence mentioned here. The impermanence of all things, the misunderstanding of self, the not-self characteristic, all rooted in deluded thinking or in an awakened human being. We understand impermanence, we understand the not-self characteristic now rooted in understanding. Understanding brings the awareness that pleasure, pain, and neither pleasure nor pain are impersonal and as such impermanent and are not craved after or self-identified with, meaning anything in the world and ultimately every thought that I generate. When feeling pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, the Buddha's words, a wise Dharma practitioner remains disjoined through lack of self-identification from these feelings. The Buddha would the reason why I'm using that word disjoined here is the Buddha would often teach in, in many suttas that we join with dukkha, we join with impermanent phenomena. And here the, we're using that word disjoined to show that we have disjoined, we've, we've extricated ourselves from our clinging relationships with the people, object, events, and ideas of the world. This one understands feelings in the body are limited to the body. What does that mean? It means that I no longer have to, to take my feeling of displeasure about that honeysuckle tree that I don't like the smell and blame the tree. I don't take it personal. It's limited to this body, okay? It's, I just had an unpleasant smell, period. Or an argument or somebody's political view. My reaction or my response is limited to this body and this well-controlled mind. And if... As a developing Dharma practitioner, this, the feeling that you arise in me is anger. Now that I'm developing a well-concentrated mind and understand that that feeling is not me, not mine, I don't have to create World War III over expressing it to you. I can control myself. So again, I'm making this point. As a, as a developing Dharma practitioner and something occurs that gives rise to anger or even rage... That's fine. You're not doing something wrong as a Dharma practitioner to have that feeling, but slugging the other guy in the nose over it or starting World War III over it is 
wrong practice, wrong view, wrong action, wrong speech. But recognizing this is not me, this is rooted in the fires of passion, calming that mind, stilling that mind, is Dhamma practice. And it's also the most profound learning experience you can give yourself, especially if you're gentle. And again, it's the reason why I say be gentle with ourselves, with yourself, so you don't lose the opportunity to learn from that, rather than judge yourself harshly and just create more of the same. This one understands feelings limited to human life and are limited to this human life. Meaning no matter what feeling I have, meaning a feeling of hatred, I don't have to pay for it in some future life because of some misunderstanding of karma. And if I'm generating great bliss in this moment, that's not going to feed me towards another future life of bliss either. It has nothing to do. It's just what is present in this moment. There's nothing permanent that I can establish about. Or even a grand and, grand, a grand and beautiful idea. Well, that's, that's moving me towards awakening. And that's an idea that's going to be present in a, in a non-physical life. Again, all these things that are common to human beings during the Buddhist time and our time are to be recognized as pure speculation, pure fabrication, and abandoned. The Buddha continues, this, understand, this one understands, feeling, understands feelings limited to human life and to this one life. This one understands that with the ending of life and the breakup of the, up, the, breakup of the body, that all that is experienced and not joined to will grow cool and end right then. So what is, what is not joined with at that moment? The six-property person. What would there be to join with? That six-property person, I now understand, is as impermanent as every other experience of my life. And so this, this thing, this vehicle for my human life experience, now comes to an end. It runs out of gas or one, it runs out of breath. It runs out. It's supposed to run out. Human life is supposed to end. We can't take it personal. It's a hard thing not to take personal, isn't it? To, and, and, I, and the, the mind might go, I cannot imagine myself not being here. It's a fabrication, isn't it? You don't have to imagine yourself not being here. You're not going to be here. What is that thought? I, we, let's talk about this as soon as we're finished. What does that thought make you think? To me, it makes me realize how important it is to be present in this moment and how fortunate I am to have come across something that allows me to live this one moment. To understand in that proper context, and I don't know when it's going to happen, You know, again, this breath might be the last breath for the three of us. We shouldn't live in fear of that, but we should live in understanding. And so that understanding that this breath is a last breath makes this the most significant breath that I can ever take. If that breath unites my mind and my body and allows me to live this moment. If my mind is telling me that there's something more important in this moment, tomorrow's job interview, the, you know, kissing my spouse in a few minutes, petting my dog, whatever, smelling the honeysuckle tree when I go outside, I've lost my mind and I've lost this moment. So what do I do when I realize I am now daydreaming? 
I treat myself with great gentleness. And, and I now I would use the word, and I don't always say this in class, and with the respect that I am due from myself. I deserve to treat be treated this way. Not by other people, but by me as an awakened human being. It's time that I stop treating myself like crap. Because I'm the only one that can do it. And it's up to me if I want to live a life like that. And I'm, and I, I'm using that phrase to say anytime that I'm taking life personally, I'm treating myself in that way. I'm treating myself in a way that I don't deserve it. Because it's not me. It's not that I don't deserve it because I'm better. I don't deserve it because it doesn't apply. It's simply not who I am. Identifying with a honeysuckle tree is to be seen as this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. When somebody's screaming in front of me that I need to be different than I, than I am or the world needs to be different than they see it, I can take a breath and say, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And in that way, again, I can stay present for my life as my life occurs. And in this way, I'm recognizing that the most important life of all is my life. But that's not rooted in selfishness. It's rooted in the understanding that if I'm to have any meaningful relationship with any other human being, I first have to be present for this one. Do you see? So the, 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 the seeming paradox, because it really isn't, but the seeming paradox of the Buddha's Dhamma is that it is extremely selfish. And it is. But it's the type of selfishness that is rooted in self-understanding. Not self-aggrandizing. Let me finish this. Another metaphor. And let me just reference that again. The breakup of the body that is experienced and, and not joined to will grow cool and end right dead. Just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on wick and oil, from the termination of the wick and oil, ignorance, it would be unnourished and cease. So once I, I blow out the candle of ignorance, it will end. But it's up to me. It's not up to you. It's not up to the world. It's not up to legislation. It's not creating a utopic world because it can't be done. Or I don't think it can. Maybe, but I'll be better served, I'll be better able to serve that <laughs> if I take to the Dhamma and awaken. In the same manner, when a wise Dhamma practitioner is feeling a feeling limited to the body, they understand. I am sensing a feeling that is limited to this body. That means when I'm angry, happy, sad, joyous, distracted, I can have that feeling because it's a feeling that is part of this six-property person without judging myself or judging the fact that I need more or less of the feeling. So, as the Buddha is teaching, when a feeling of pain, pleasure, or neither feel of pleasure nor pain is arising, meaning anger or bliss, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. I am sensing a feeling limited to this human life. That's the rest of that sentence that I didn't finish. So this great feeling I just had. Well, let me, let me be personal about it. 
this feeling of pain that I have in my body, and I have, I've had chronic pain for a few years now, the, the idea of that this pain that I'm experiencing is limited to this, this human life doesn't instill on me like, wow, I can't wait till I'm dead and I'm no longer feeling this pain. It reminds me that as a consequence of having, a, of having the, the fortune, the good fortune to have a human life, I have to expect some pain, or at least understand that when pain arise, arises in me, why should I take it personal? Because it's an aspect of the sixth sense base to have pain. If I'm going to have a human life, there's going to be pain. And everybody has different levels of that. And guess what? When, when I try to uh, the reason why equity is such a such a, a perniciously evil idea is life isn't equitable, and it can't be. It can never be equitable. The, the only way we could ever strive for for um, equity, meaning the, the 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 ending of all opportunity, is we'd have to start killing people the minute they were born. Because some people, like my dad, lived 101 years. My best friend ever died when he was 14. And some human beings are born and take one breath and they're, die- and they're dead. Just that alone, just human biology alone should teach us all life isn't fair. And it cannot be unless we start ending human life at first breath. Because that's the only way there'll ever be true equity. The ending of any opportunity for more. But life isn't fair. And through understanding, people have one breath, some have 14 years, some have 101, some have 66. Everybody's different. None of that is relevant to a human life, meaning length of. So again, what is relevant then? If, if this is so... Um, if there's no established length of human life, look, everybody gets 85 years and that's it then how could I even, why should I even consider how long my life might be? Except, again, in practical ways such as retirement planning, etc. And we could touch on that if we had to. But my life is impermanent. It could have ended at birth, it could have ended a, a moment ago, and it could end in a moment. But right now I'm having a human life. Let me make the most of it. This feeling is limited to human life, and I understand I am sensing a feeling limited to this life. This wise Dharma practitioner understands that with the ending of life and the breakup of the the body, that all that is experienced and not joined to will grow cool, cold, and end right then. No matter how wonderful my feelings are, I can't carry it past this life. And no no matter how hurtful or painful this human life might be, I don't have to carry it any any longer than this human life. In this manner, when one has the highest determination for understanding, for the knowledge, this is the highest understanding, for the knowledge of the arising and passing away of suffering and stress, this one has achieved the greatest noble understanding, the arising and the passing away of stress. And again, anything that is stress-related, not just uh, stress, again, characterized as greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. So receiving the things that I am greedy after that might bring a, a pleasurable feeling is to recognize how good it is when that passes away and stop clinging to it. 
This Dharma practitioner has gained release from all views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. Their mind is established in right view, now resting in pure truth, understanding Four Noble Truths. This view will no longer fluctuate due to distraction. That's what is meant by equanimity, a balanced mind. This one knows whatever is deceptive and remains free from associating with deception. This Dharma practitioner is established with the highest determination for truth. This is the foremost unbinding from wrong views and is the highest noble truth. Now the Buddha is referring to himself. For, to himself. Formerly, when still ignorant of four noble truths, this Dharma practitioner foolishly craved after mental acquisitions and created self-identities clinging to these mental acquisitions. Again, he's talking to Pukasati, who was uh, uh, traveling in the same spiritual circles as the Buddha and being taught the same um, non-physical culminations of all these different uh, spiritual determinations. This Dharma practitioner has completely abandoned all of those speculated uh, fabrications. Through the Eightfold Path, the Buddha is reminding Pukasati, it is through the Eightfold Path that this one has cut fabrications off at the root of ignorance. Not at the root, root of anal, an analysis, not at the root of speculation, right at the root of their arising, at the root of ignorance. Like the stump of a palmyra tree, now deprived of the conditions of sustenance, fabrication will no longer arise. A rightly self-awakened one does the work of cutting off ignorance at its root. Likewise, when still ignorant of Four Noble Truths, this Dharma practitioner foolishly was driven by desire and self-infatuation, by ill will and hatred, by delusion and ignorance and created self-identities clinging to these unskillful qualities. Uh, I was part of, of many um, modern Buddhist practices that uh, in their own self-identification with their own practice didn't realize the ill will and hatred they were projecting onto people that were, were practicing the same thing. And I may come across as that, and I hope I don't, because the only reason I say it is to point out the difference, because that's all it is. It doesn't matter what form of Buddhist practice anybody or religion people are practicing or none, and it shouldn't to us. What should be important to us is that we're practicing the Dhamma that works for us, the Dhamma that... that I feel, is the restored teachings of the Buddha. We are no, no longer driven by self-infatuation, by ill will and hatred, by delusion and ignorance, and created self-identities clinging to these unskillful qualities. Now, this Dharma practitioner has completely abandoned them. Through the Eightfold Path, this one has cut fabrications off at the root of ignorance. Like the stump of a palmyra tree, now deprived of the conditions of sustenance, fabrications will no longer arise. This Dharma practitioner has established the highest determination for calm, for the calming of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, for the calming of the three defilements. This one has established the highest noble calm. This Dharma practitioner knows to never neglect right view, to always guard the four noble truth, and to always, establish, always train for establishing a calm and well-concentrated mind. This Dharma practitioner understands where, through wise restraint, 
as life as life in life as life occurred. The currents of speculation and supposition do not flow. Through wise restraint, for me having for me having control of my mind in this moment, the currents of speculation and supposition do not flow. This one is now known as the Sage of Peace. With reference to what I am saying to you, Pukasati, and to us now, all of the following is speculation and supposition. Now think think about how all of these apply to all of us. I am, again, this is all speculation and supposition. I am, I am this, I will be, I will not be. I will have this form, I will not have this form. I will have psychic powers, I will not have psychic powers. Again, this is such an important teaching for our time and during the Buddhist time, because just like our time, most of modern Buddhism is taught to reconcile every one of these in some form of speculative realm. What we might be, what we will be, what we should be, what form we might have, the psychic powers that we can develop, or the psychic powers that we might not develop. Speculate, the Buddha continues, speculation and supposition are diseases, a cancer, an arrow that we're inflicting on ourselves. By abandoning all speculation and all supposition, this Dhamma practitioner is known as a sage of peace. A sage of peace is no longer distracted or agitated by birth, by having a human life, by aging, by sickness, by death, by sorrow, regret, greed, aversion, or deluded thinking. With no distraction or agitation, what would this Dhamma practitioner crave for or cling to? So what would this Dhamma practitioner crave for or cling to? With nothing to speculate or suppose about. Think about that. You have ceased speculating or placing any supposition on the next moment, the next week, the next year, the next lifetime. Your mind is only focused on life as life occurs. If you haven't already experienced it, and I and both of you have, you've talked about it, but imagine that lasting. That's equanimity. That's an awakened mind. That's what we are all striving for. And that is what Siddhartha Gautama taught all of us is completely humanly possible in this lifetime. This Dharma practitioner understands where the currents of speculation and supposition do not flow. When through wise restraint, the currents of speculation and supposition do not flow, this one is known as the Sage of Peace. Now, friend Pukasati, you should remember my brief analysis, not so brief, of these six properties. Then the thought occurred to Venerable Pukasati, surely the great teacher has come to me. Now he's starting to realize the joke that has been played on him. Surely the rightly self-awakened has come to me. Pukasati rose and bowed to the Buddha and said, I was foolish, confused, and unskilled to address you as merely a friend. Please accept my apology so that I may restrain myself in the future. The Buddha replied, Yes, confusion overcame you, meaning because of the familiarity he initially addressed the Buddha. But most importantly, despite, forget about that, but most importantly, you have recognized your confusion. And in accordance with my Dhamma, have made the strong determination to end your confusion. Do you see how powerful but but incredibly subtle the Buddhist teachings was and how he approached Pukasati? 
He didn't say you're a fool, you don't recognize the great Buddha in front of you. He simply presented the Dharma. And that way that he taught allowed Pukasati to understand true humility. True humility. It is just this determination and discipline that one grows in the Dhamma and practices restraint in the future. Pukasati then said, Great teacher, please accept me into the order to follow your Dhamma. And so the Buddha then asked him for the only qualification he ever asked for people wanting to join his Dhamma. Again, there's, there was never any hierarchy in the Buddha's Dhamma or never any extreme measures uh, that the Buddha imposed on people to prove that they were ready. And I'm thinking of Dog- Dogen's admonition. I can't remember his name. What was it? I think it was to Dogen. I, yeah, I lost my history. Uh, but Dogen told somebody who came to him for instruction that you first need to cut off... No, it was Dogen who cut off his eyelids to prove to his teacher that he was worthy to practice the Dhamma. And there's even descriptions in some of the sutras about you know how, how Dogen did this and he was now able to not to not fall asleep during meditation. The Buddha never thought, taught anything like that. There's other teachings where, uh, and again, I wish I could remember, one person cut off his arm to prove that he was worthy of, of Dhamma practice. Again, nonsense. The Buddha just said, as qualification, do you have an alms bowl and robes? Are you ready to go forth to, 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 to put aside the things of the world and go forth? Do you have an alms bowl or robes? No, replied Pukasati. Then gather a bowl and robes, and I will give you the going forth. Meaning, now you're, you're part of the Dhamma, you're part of the original Sangha. Pukasati was delighted. He bowed to the Buddha and left in search of an alms bowl and robes for his ordination. While searching, and this is very important, uh, you remember the Bahia Sutta, when searching, a runaway cow trampled and killed Pukasati. A large group from the Sangha found the Buddha and told him of Pukasati's demise. They asked the Buddha what Pukasati's future state would be. So again, these are beginning monks and they're still speculating about the future. And the Buddha, never missing a chance to teach the Dhamma, says, Friends, Pukasati was wise. He practiced the Dhamma in accordance with my instruction. And I love this line. He never pestered me with unrelated issues. So again, I'm going to cut, I'm going to stop there. One of the reasons, or the reasons why I organize my classes the way I organize them, meaning I'll answer any question everybody, anybody ever has, but not in, if, if the approach, if the class, if the question is not relatable to the Dhamma, I ask that person to, to, we'll have a chat after class. They never pestered me with unrelated issues. Meaning, when I'm giving it, I'm not talking about myself, but I am, but I learned from the Buddha, when I'm teaching the Dhamma, I teach only the Dhamma. I don't get into the what-ifs and the wherefores and all that. He never pestered me with unrelated issues. He has abandoned the five fetters of self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, try to relate that to today, and most of modern Buddhism is rituals and practices, doubt and uncertainty, one of the major forms of modern Buddhism teaches to generate great doubt, to dive into your doubt and analyze your doubt. The Buddha taught, recognize doubt and abandon it. Doubt and uncertainty, sensual craving and deluded thinking. 
They have abandoned all of these fetters, self-identification, grasping at rituals and practices, doubt and uncertainty, sensual craving, and deluded thinking. He is now free of fabricated views and will never again be subject to the suffering born of ignorance. Those that heard those words, meaning now these monks, were delighted. Whenever that phrase, they were delighted, means they took, they took the meaning of the Buddhist teachings. That's the end of this rather long sutta. I apologize to keeping you up uh, so late at night. Um, but so let's, uh, let's talk about that. And I think you'll see, or maybe a better way to say this is, do you see how the Eightfold Path and the sutta teaches the, the limiting factors of the path? Dominic, and any other questions you might have? Uh, yeah, lots of questions, but unfortunately it's 10 p.m. and I should get to bed soon. Well, Natalie, you said uh, that. Do you, if you want to set up a, a, another session, let me know, and we'll. You know, I don't want you to have a lot of questions bouncing around your head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let me just say this. Um, I read about a guy once, a scholar. You know, he knew everything about Buddhism. Uh, he read every sutta, every commentary, everything that could be ever found. And there was always, he was always searching for uh, profound teaching, yeah. you know. Uh, and then when he read everything and still hadn't found that profound teaching he was looking for, he said, well, now it's time to find a teacher. So he was looking for a teacher for, I don't know how I don't know, for a few years, I guess. Then he heard, uh, he heard there's a, a great teacher living in the jungle, and then he spent a few months looking in the jungle to find this teacher. And finally he finds him, and he bows to him three times and said, oh, great master or whatever, uh, give me a profound teaching, you know? And uh, the, the monk said, um, now something from Dhammapada, I know this has a lot of translation, but basically ceasing to do evil, cultivating to do good, purifying the heart. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. And the guy was like, you know, his face fell to the floor. He was disappointed. And he, yeah. he said, but master, every five-year-old five year cute knows that. And the master said, the, the monk said, uh, yeah, but uh, even when they're 50, they're still not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so... Please go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, I sent you the last time something from uh, Tao Te Ching, uh, where Lao Tzu describes, you know, the three uh, important qualities that uh, yep. each person should have, like simplicity, uh, patience, and, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Pick one. Virtue. Um, compassion. Yep compassion so at the moment i'm trying to simplify things as i was always over complicating things you know i as you said i was thinking that you know uh, this must be hard this must be difficult to do uh, there must be some mystical about it or whatever you know but uh, this only brought more misery more questions yep. and it never ended, you know? So someone says, yes, there is a God. Well, okay, if there's a God, one, then why? Then this and that. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And you cannot end it. So 
now I'm trying to do simple things, yeah. <laughs> uh, to go the simple way. And today, when I was walking home, you mentioned honeysuckle tree. Uh, I saw this uh, beautiful cherry blossom tree, you know, and it was warm. I was in my T-shirt, the sun was shining, this tree was beautiful and it was smelling like really good and uh, someone was cutting grass and the grass was smelling and it was just a beautiful moment, you know. And I was starting to get caught in that moment and I just took a breath and I said, okay, after the next corner, your life may end, so stop. Be present, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, this is how I'm trying to 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 live Dharma, you know, uh, by not by not overcomplicating things, by not yeah. overreading things. Just try to be, try to do good things, try to be gentle with myself. Yes. Uh, just purify my heart, as Buddha said. So today, for example. This was overcomplicated for me, if you know what I mean. It well, took a long a, time. It, yeah. I, I, I had problems with, you know, focusing. Uh, I was starting to think, oh, no, I should go to bed soon. And it's, you know, when you start to get anxious, okay, then come back, come back. But this feeling was ever present, you know, so it's it was hard to, to stay present. But... Uh, yeah, I, I, I get it, you know. You do. I, I think I do. And I was never uh, obsessed with, you know, some people are really obsessed. Uh, if people are going to remember them after they die and stuff like that, they must do something worthy, worthwhile to be remembered after death. Yeah. I, I never had these uh, thoughts or uh, illusions yeah. or whatever. When I'm dead, I'm dead. I don't care if someone remembers me or not because <laughs> I'm not going to remember them. You know, I'm dead. Yeah. So I wouldn't say I'm afraid of non-existence, not existing, but uh, I would be lying if I would say that I don't fear death. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's fine. You know, I, I would rather you say what you just said than say... Than to to say I'm not afraid of death when you actually were, you know? yeah. And, and again, no, I'm, I'm not afraid what's gonna happen after death. You know that people are not gonna remember me. I don't have a problem with that, but you know, <laughs> I'm not really looking forward to it. So yeah, well, I, honestly, I Dominic, I'm not that. looking forward to your death either. But <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I would understand it, and I would, and again, I I would feel sad. Because I know you have a wife, you got kids. That would be a normal human emotion. The Dhamma doesn't take that away from. But I want to touch on something. Um, what you, that story you told that that you can you can coalesce the Buddhist teaching down into uh, abandoning evil. Um, the problem with those, and, and most of modern Buddhism is presented as catchphrases. And the problem with that is, yeah, that is the essence of the Buddhist teaching. But what what that story failed to leave out, which most stories fail to leave out, is the way to do that is through the Eightfold Path. And so no, you're, and and there's I... a lot of similarities between Taoism and uh, the ideas of what the Buddha probably taught or, or maybe what, you know, the catchphrases we hear. 
But none of that, none of what, none of, there's nothing in the Tao that teaches you how to achieve this in a realistic way. And I've never come across any philosophical teaching. And I, you know, not, I, I studied a lot of the Greeks and et cetera. Bodhi, stop it. Come here. Bodhi, don't start now. Come here. He gets a look on his face. It's laughable because he knows he shouldn't be doing it. Come here, sit down. Um, I lost my place. I'm sorry. No, no, I understand that uh, using catchphrases is... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I know that so you talk about simplifying your life. Has, it's the eightfold, the limiting factors of the eightfold path that yeah. simplify our lives. So this yeah, sutta yeah. itself is, it can be confusing or lengthy at least, at least, but I, I, would, I would suggest to both of you, listen to it again. I'll post it later on today. And it's something that, that I teach often. Because it's so important to understand all that I am, all that I can ever be is this six-property person. And that's what to take from this, not, not, the whole, not to carry the whole sutta. But by me recognizing that I'm a six-property person relieves me of those things that would, that would cause me to be harmful towards others. So yeah, the, that's the Buddhist teaching, to, to remain harmless. But it's not what he taught. What he taught you know, is this, this Eightfold Path. That's what we practice, too. So, Thank you, Dominic. Uh, again, shoot me off an email when's a good time to get together with you. Okay, I will. Good, good, good. Tom, hello. Hi, John. Sorry for keeping uh, you up yeah, so late. To, I hope you could hear me okay. I, I had to... Um... I had to get. I, I realized I'm going to miss my train home. Oh, geez. so I had to get. I had to get moving. All right. Well, get going. And why don't you? Let's let's uh, put it. Get a time together. We can yeah, have okay. a little chat too. Just let okay, me know yeah, when it'll work for you. You can't hear me. I see. Yeah, you can't hear me, right? I can hear you. I can hear you. you hear me? Uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was just saying. I just. Um, I just realized about five minutes ago that. I'm running late. I, I was doing the. I was in the airport terminal, and I'm running late for my train home. Um, so that's why I had to. Well, just, just give me. Just give me two. I think I think Tom was saying just just give me a few minutes. You're breaking up, Tom. Um, and I'll be able to. Uh, just a moment. There you are. I, I missed a couple sentences there. Do you hear me? Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, I um, I was just saying, I just, I, yeah, I can hear you. I, for my train, oh, um, yeah, apologies for my, so, I, I managed to mess up on my scheduling two weeks in a row, and I, I was in an airport again earlier, and that's why... Um, it hasn't been ideal, but anyway, I was able to listen to the whole talk. Good. Um, I just, I just, as I said, I just realized just now I'm running a bit late for a train I have to get, so I had to get back on the move. Um, so well, you've shown great right effort in getting to this class, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nah, well, yeah, but also bad scheduling, my, mm. my fault. So I, <laughs> Nothing to apologize for, Tom. I suddenly realized my train was arriving at the same time that the, 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 the class was starting. My, the train, sorry, my, my plane. Anyway, um, yeah, just I, I'll keep it very short because I know it's quite late for everybody and it's even an hour later um, for Dominic. Um, 
I did. I must confess, I did find it very long, and I just I, I like to I like to digest things kind of bit by bit, and I just I do find it it's a brilliant suitor. Um, but I did find it a little bit difficult to follow just because there's so much and I wasn't sure where to put my attention. Um, so I do, I do have lots of questions. I wrote a few things down, um, but I can, I can come back to them another day. Yeah. yeah, There was quite a lot because it was a, it was a a very long suitor. Um, but yeah, anyway, but thank you for the teaching. Obviously it's always, 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 um, you know, always good to hear and, um, you know, the, this concept of just sort of, there were certain imagery, images like the, the fire. I, I love these images in the Dharma, you know, yeah. of, um, the creation of fire and, and, and how that relates. You know, it really brings me back to the fact that the Dharma is all about, you know, the laws of human nature. Yeah. Just like we have laws in the natural world about yeah. how fire is created. We have similar laws about how, how our own body um, or how we react to those the six um the six properties and how it, yeah. it's just such a it's so logical um which i which i love um so anyway so that, those just a few things i took from it but um uh yeah but i guess that's 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 all i'll i'll share for now just just well, also being mindful of time but uh but yeah thank you thanks john and and thanks also dominic i enjoyed your sharing actually yeah um, me too Nice. Well, and you too, Tom. Again, this this is this is what a well-focused, well-informed sangha should be—that we we support each other and teach each other. We're all teachers. Um, yeah, just just briefly, um, what was I going to say? Something important. Oh, I I don't mean this in in any way as as your homeroom teacher. Are you both reading the sutta before class? Okay, cause again, yeah, that can help. I did. Uh, try to do so, Dominic, because that that does help somewhat, uh, in preparing yourself for what I'm about to, to say. And uh, it is just this way. One of the reasons why I teach the way I teach, but I would say the reason why this is so effective in teaching you the Dhamma is that I teach suttas. I don't teach my ideas about what the sutta should be, although you know, obviously my commentary is there. And, I, and that really is, I think, what sets, not that I'm trying to, but I think it's what sets us apart from everything else that's out there. I've never, I very, very rarely heard anybody teach a sutta. I've heard people teach parts of the sutras, even the heart or the lotus or the diamond or the platform. But very, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody teach one complete sutta ever. And that's unfortunate because these are wonderful, beautiful words, but we have them um, and it's what we're practicing. Do you both have time for meta or is it time for you guys to get off? It's up to you. I'm sorry. I should. I should really go get going here. It's. Thank you all for your both of your right efforts. And uh, again, send me a time when we can both get all you know, when uh, when we can get together one on one. It's convenient <laughs> for both of you. So that would be great. Good to appreciate see both it. of your Thanks smiling faces and, and get a good night's sleep. Get home safe, yeah, Tom. Sleep. Thank you. <laughs> see you all soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.